Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year from us all at TNT Radio. Discussing local, national, and international issues. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back to Hour 3 of Weekends with Jason Olborn. I am delighted to have your company and appreciate the likes, comments, shares, suggestions. You can just send them in and we will get working on all of the ideas that you come up with and many, many more. Now, what we do on this show is have deep in-depth conversations with people from all around the world sometimes you'll be like that's exactly what i was thinking and other times you'll be thinking didn't think of that at all and that's the purpose of what we do here it is the weekend here in australia but sometimes our guests are still on a week night and my next guest is doing exactly that and i'm delighted to have barry nussbaum joining me in a moment he is the founder of the americantruthproject.org an international platform that educates on five key issues, American-Israel relations, BDS and anti-Semitism, Middle East policy, radical Islam, and homegrown terror. He appears daily on his own platform, in addition to guesting on numerous national and international political and news networks. And you can even sign up for free to get their daily content by typing in findbarry.com, and it will allow free signups for American Truth Project content. Barry Nussbaum, thank you for joining me today on Weekends. Welcome. Look, I uh, appreciate your company today, and it's uh, a delight to be able to speak to you at year's end because there's a lot of to go and backtrack on over the past 12 months. And what I was hoping to do was to get an indication on what's happening on the situation in Maui because that's uh, wh where you're from now. And uh, it was a profound situation that we found us in uh, a few months back when these fires started and ravaged the area in a place that you would never expect to happen. Can you give us a recap how you first discovered what was going on and how you realized just how severe it really was? Wow, that's that's quite the intro. I, I didn't discover it. I ended up in the middle of it. Um, wow. As irony would have it, I was on my way back from the airport bringing my brother-in-law out for a trip. We were having a delightful conversation, got stopped on the highway, pulling into what is called Lahaina, the town on this side of the island. Um, there was a temporary stop on the uh, highway. The police officer said, just stand by for a couple of minutes. There's a little brush fire up ahead. We were in that car by the side of the road, Jason, for five and a half hours. And that little bush, brush fire ended up being the most deadly fire in American history of at least the last century. Uh, there were 90 mile an hour winds. Um, I drive a big SUV and it was rocking like a, and not a joke, like you're on one of those really scary roller coasters at the, at the amusement park. Well, when we got out to get a closer look at the fire, it picked me up and blew me into the side of the SUV. If you can imagine a wildfire with 90 mile an hour gusts driving the winds, there is nothing firefighters can do about it. And we sat in that SUV, my brother-in-law and I, and watched Lahaina be obliterated. Not to mention we couldn't see it, but the 
many lives that were lost as a result. In, in that moment there, five and a half hours in, the thought process that must have been going through your head to be able to contact family and loved ones and let them know where you were and planning perhaps some form of escape, but then realising that you are not capable of even planning such an event because of the, the severity, the impactfulness of it being slammed into your own vehicle there. How do you cope in those moments? Um, what were you trying to do moment by moment with your brother-in-law? Are you encouraging each other? Are you sitting there just in silence? Are you trying to make phone calls? What 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 are you doing? You know, that's a. have never been asked that question. I've probably done 50 shows on the fire and I've never been asked that question. It, it, it raises an interesting thought in my mind, Jason. There's a certain amount of disbelief in your brain mm. when you're, you're environmentally engulfed in something that you have never imagined, even seen it on television. When you see 100-foot flames coming towards your, your vehicle with horrendous winds where the, the streetlight is doing this, back and forth, power lines being snapped off like twigs. For a while, you're processing what you're seeing, but you're not believing what you're seeing. Mm. And then, and then when it got to the point where the policemen started coming up to the various cars, there were probably several hundred of us stopped on the highway, and they were screaming in bullhorns, evacuate, 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 turned us all around, and we were fleeing. 50 miles an hour in the other direction, racing away from the flames. And so we ended up spending, this is not a not a joke, two nights in the car. The one highway <laughs> that connects the other side of the island with this side of the island was shut down for emergency vehicles only. I slept in that car for two days, calling home. The family was terrified. They could see the 100-foot flames. Everybody was calling everybody as more and more and more property was destroyed. Uh, it was quite an event. And even now, several months later, when you drive past the burn zone, it looks like Hiroshima after World War II, quite honestly. It's uh, it's absolutely devastating, of course, and uh, we, we saw the the extent of the damage and and realizing that something was just as you said beyond anything that you can ever expect. How you described just those moment by moment scenarios reminds me, uh, and of course I'm not in it. I'm on the other side of the planet watching the events of September 11, 2001, and I'll never forget the moment. I was watching an episode of The West Wing on television. The episode finished, and I was just it was such a brilliant moment but it was it kind of felt real and immediately we crossed to the nightly news and and as it was happening the second plane flew into the tower and uh and i was in shock and i remember um uh it, it was a previous relationship with with my ex-wife and we sat there the next day the entire day i don't think we spoke more than 10 words both of our eyes were just fixed on the television screen because it was something that we'd never understood we were still looking for answers developing situations etc so i can fully um at least empathize with the scenario, but to actually live it is another thing altogether. And uh, at least one thing was was uh, was in your favor there, uh, Barry, was that you owned a large SUV, a characteristic of, of, of American life, and it, it certainly paid a dividend there. You, you, you wouldn't want to be in a little tiny runabout in a situation no. like that and be crammed no, in. 
So, so, so we're thankful for small mercies in that situation. Fast forwarding now, what is the situation today in Maui? What are the locals? The locals were very, very upset with the government back in the day, and there were accusations that it might have been set up or planning for a smart city and all of these types of things. Is there any validity to those types of arguments? What's what's happening today if you were to arrive in Maui? What would you see and what would you understand? Well, First, let's address the first part of your question, Jason. I did a number of shows in the week, maybe two weeks after the disaster struck. Uh, and I kept asked, being asked the same weird question, which is, are you aware, Barry, that there were space lasers used to start and continue the fire? And, and I, I had this incredulous response. What are you talking about, space lasers? And then they would explain, well, the Chinese have these weapons on satellites and they were shooting down these blue lasers. And I got to tell you, I sat there for hours and hours and hours just above Lahaina, where the fire was located, um, looking right into the, the town, burning to the ground. I didn't see any lasers. It was at night. You would have seen it. People have created these pictures. I, I would assume they're Photoshopped. I have personal experience, and when these things come to trial, I assume I'll be called as a witness. I drove over a number of downed power lines on the highway, Jason. They, the power lines were in the highway because the power poles were snapped off like twigs mm -hmm. in the winds that were gusting, they say, up to 90 miles an hour. You put a live power pole on the ground and the line breaks, and you can see the spark shooting 50 feet into the dry brush, I saw brush exploding all around us, and we were trying to weave through it, thinking this is not a big deal, not realizing how big the fire was, because all you see is what's right in front of you. As far as I'm concerned, forget the space laser thing. Forget the it was on purpose. We had the confluence of a number of very unique circumstances that created the perfect storm, as they say. 60 to 90 mile hour winds because there was a hurricane off the shore of one of the other Hawaiian islands, number one. Number two, when the winds struck and power poles started going down, the local utility here, Hawaiian Electric Company, did not turn off the power, Jason. They left it on. Mm. And so the power lines were fully energized, shooting electricity into dried brush. Problem number three, water service in some areas was restricted because the, and I really mean this, the imbecile in charge of natural resources for this island had decided without the permission of certain landowners, water should be restricted and how it's allowed to be allocated to fight the fire. So there wasn't enough water. Next, the sirens never never founded, uh, yes. never sounded. I don't know if you know about our emergency warning system in, in the Hawaiian Islands. We have sirens on all the islands. It's the most advanced early warning system on the planet. And it's for tsunamis, chemical spills, environmental disasters, windstorms, wildfires. If something bad is happening, these sirens go off. They test them uh, the first week of the month and you hear it, nobody cares because they're used to hearing it on the first of the month. Everybody was expecting the siren that day. It never came. People didn't evacuate as a result. And here's the, here's the clincher. And this is the part 
that is leading to a lot of lawsuits and a lot of anger against the government. There's two entrances to Lahaina on one, the south end and the north end. Both the exits, both the entrances were shut down by the police. Nobody has an explanation why. And the people that were in their cars trying to escape, if they didn't jump into the water or run away, were incinerated in their cars. I know of several families that spent the night, and I mean this literally, eight hours in the ocean, jumped mm -hmm. out of their cars, over the embankment, into the bay, and spent the night in the water as the town burned down around them. All these things happened at the exact same time. And it led to 2,200 people homeless, 100 plus dead, unknown numbers missing. The entire town of Lahaina is gone. I mean, it is totally gone. It's ashes. And hundreds and hundreds, actually several thousand other homes destroyed as well. What happens to these people? Where do they get relocated to? Well, now some have left the islands. They had nowhere to go. Mm. Imagine you're in your car. You jump in with your family. You don't have time to evacuate. You got no warning. The text message service didn't work. The alarms were never sounded. If you got out, you left at the last minute, jumped in the car and drove as fast as you could in the opposite direction. Came back to a house that was gone. All your personal possessions, your business, gone. So a lot of people actually, Jason, have left Hawaii. They have no way to support themselves here. Mm. The ones that have a place to live are living off the dole provided by the United States government. FEMA, the Red Cross are putting them up in hotels. And most of the hotels on the beach, which are the beautiful resorts on this side of the island, are half filled with homeless that yes. were created by this disaster. Now, there were other rumors that people were being offered cents on the dollar to buy up their burnt property, their burnt land. Was there any truth to that at all? No, there's a there was an emergency ordinance passed in our legislature that's signed by the governor um, disallowing that to keep out speculators from buying up the town. I think that was a good idea. Yeah, I'm a capitalist. I believe in free enterprise. But under these kinds of circumstances, with massive desperation, let things settle down. As far as I know, very little, if any, property has changed hands. And besides, you can't build on it for years and years and years. Uh, I know one of the contractors who's been awarded a contract by the state of Hawaii, they're talking about two to three years just for cleanup. Yes, that makes sense, doesn't it? That there has to be uh, some form of a, a process to repair and then prepare the land for any form of construction. Does it make you more, oh, sorry, does it make you less confident that, um, that you want to stay in Maui ongoing? Is this just part of your life now that you will be part of the rebuilding process? Or, or do you sort of say, no, I, I can move somewhere else? What's your outlook for Maui at this stage from your own perspective? Well, this family um, is here and we love it here. Um, unfortunately, a few miles down the road, the town that used to be the center of social life and restaurants and shopping is gone. There's literally nothing left, but the environment's the same. The weather's the same. The people are very nice here. It's a beautiful place to live. Uh, the weather is absolutely flawless. Um, we're not going anywhere. Having said that, if I was one of the people that lost 
a home and a business, I might be thinking differently. Yeah, that's a, a very, very fair perspective, isn't it? And uh, and and each to their own, of course. But there's something uh, in the ability to be there for the rebuild, and uh, and it makes it, it will make Maui a, a, an even more impressive and important location for those that stick around to do it. But you can fully understand when there are others that simply cannot get on with the rest of their lives and must relocate in this extraordinary set of circumstances. What we're going to do now is take a quick break, and when we come back, I'm going to flip the conversation and we are going to head over to the most controversial topic of our time, the war with Israel Hamas in Gaza and get a very different perspective. You're watching and listening to Weekends with Jason Olborn here on TNT Radio. Rick Munn on TNT Radio. There was a, a statement that I saw last week that I thought was quite interesting from one of these uh, web spokespeople, the World Economic Forum spokesperson. And one thing that she said that I thought was quite interesting was she said, you know, um, there has been a little bit of a tail off with people buying into the vaccine narrative and she blamed that on people like us spreading so-called missing disinformation. She said that climate change was a little bit too much of an abstract concept for people to really grab and get their heads around. So that's not really taking off the way they want to either. And then she said something very interesting. She said, you know what? When the water crisis comes, people will understand that because it's simple and everybody needs water. And if you don't have water for a few days at a time, you'll know all about it. So maybe, you know, we're hypothesizing a little bit about what's what it's going to take to grab people and bring them back on board again with a World Economic Forum type narrative. Could this be what it is? Locked in Loaded with Rick Munn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Chief Division Counsel and DOJ have approved a no-knock breach. We want the subject to be on display. Doing the walk of shame, full visual impact. Any questions? Are we becoming a police state? Government told American citizens they couldn't go to church on Sunday. For the first time in my life, I'm saying to myself, am I going to get a knock at the door? FBI warrant, come to the door now! The Patriot Act and FISA were used against Donald Trump. These individuals have commissioned the biggest propaganda play in U.S. history. They don't go after the people that rigged the election. They go after the people that want to find out what the hell happened. We don't need to have a crime. What we need is a person to look at. And then we go find out what crime you did. FBI! Our focus is shifting. Our main priority as a bureau is going to be domestic terrorism. It really paints anybody who's right of center. If you're a pro-life, pro-family Catholic, they define you as radical. These are anti-government. We have freedom of religion and freedom of speech. Violent extremists, and they must be dealt with. We can do anything we want. We don't rock. rock. We talk. talk. Today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Welcome back to Weekends with Jason Olborn, and I'm with Barry Nussbaum from americantruthproject.org, and I encourage you to have a look at that incredible website. Barry, how many visitors are you getting these days on all of your work that you're doing? It seems to be getting bigger and bigger. Yeah, we're growing like crazy. Uh, there's a profound 
uh, thirst for the truth, Jason. We're over 2.1 million followers and growing by about uh, 100,000 a month. Uh, we provide all of our content for free. We're followed around the world, especially uh, with our special insight and connections uh, on the Israel-American relationship and Middle East policy overall. That's our specialty. Indeed it is. And, uh, and, and now we're going to move into that particular subject. Now, when it comes up, um, you tend to see that there obviously there's never more two sides to any story, uh, and you, and it, it starts out with the October seven attack, uh, and some people will argue that the gates were left open, it was set up, that Israeli has funded Hamas, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But then you move in, and twelve hundred Israelis are, are taken out, and then there's a retaliation. This is just recording in in a summary of what we saw, and we fast forward almost two months, uh, in fact longer now. We're up to Christmas. We're at ten weeks, and um, and, and now we see what's going on. Gaza is uh, a shadow of its former self, if whatever it was. People wondering what happens after we get to the other side at the end of this particular conflict. We can talk about the rebuilding process. Who should be involved? Should it just be Israel? Should it be neighbouring Egypt? Should Jordan have a role in this? Should it be other uh, Muslim nations that stand up and say, we will support this? And there's a profound difference because when you look to these other countries, you're not seeing a whole lot of encouragement to the Palestinian people. For example, Egypt saying, come to us. Jordan saying, come to us. Here's some money. We're going to rebuild. We'll do whatever it is. We've got to get to a peaceful solution. It seems that the Palestinians are left on their side. There's not the support structure there. And of course, the world looks at Israel and loses its mind because Israel, who one way or another, cannot live next door to terrorism and has to come up with a solution. Now, there's two sides that I like to explore. There's the post-1948 period, but there's also the pre-1948 that is back to ancient history. And I think that that's deserving of some perspective. Can you fill us in, Barry, therefore, how you see it from a historical perspective in the region? Absolutely. And that's the perfect way to start this discussion, Jason. In the history of this planet, there has never been, with one exception, a people that have had the same language, the same philosophy, the same religion, the same belief systems, ethical, moral, societal, and have lived in the same place longer with more consistencies than the Jews in Israel. If you think about it, the word Jew comes from Judea, which is part of the territory, and it was named that in the Holy Bible from 3,000 years ago. On a daily basis, antiquities are dug up showing the same language, showing the coins, showing the pottery, showing all of the history. The Bible, Old and New Testaments are historical books, and for anyone that doesn't believe me, go to Israel get a certified tour guide, get to be able to see it for your own eyes. This is where Moses was. This is where Abraham was. This is where Jesus was. This is where Paul was. This isn't anything new. This is 3,000 years of history. The Bible is mentioned over 600 times. Sorry, Jerusalem is mentioned over 600 times in the Old Testament. The entire religion grew up before the birth of Jesus in this exact land. And the Jews 
have been there ever since. The longest continual continuity, language, society, belief system, religion, and written word in the history of the planet. That is modern Israel. It's not 1948. That's just the rebirth of the nation. Jews have been there for 3,000 years. So if we fast forward now, and it's um, it obviously is, is skating over a lot of history, but if we move up to the period 1948 and we're seeing the birth of the modern Israel, do you think that this is part of the confusion, therefore, from a historical perspective, why people have a problem with understanding that level and understanding there and therefore jumping forward and looking perhaps to a two-state solution as the only solution out of where we are now? How do you then rationalise the post-1948 period to what we're seeing? Well, that's an interesting question because two states, the concept is based on two states for two peoples. Mm-hmm. Jews and the people who are non-Jewish, which is about 22% of Israel, Arab, Druze, and other Christian, other religions, and the other peoples, which are Arabs, mostly Muslim. In 1948, the suggestion by the new United Nations was two states, Israel and a Palestinian state for those Arabs that didn't want to be part of Israel. For people that don't know the history, let me give you a history lesson. The Palestinian state that was established in 1948 is called Jordan. And that's the majority Palestinian state. The vast majority of the population there considers themselves Palestinian. By the way, Palestinian is just a series of tribes that are Arabs. They're all Muslim with a small extent uh, that are Christian but the vast majority are Muslim. Jordan is the Palestinian state. In the original partition, Israel was gonna be this big, then it became this big, then it became this big, then it became this big. The Jews kept saying yes. The Arabs kept saying no. And Israel did this and shrank and shrank and shrank and shrank and shrank. Now, as we come up to 2024, the two-state solution is still being talked about, but here's the problem. If the people on the other side of the border say they're going to kill you, try to kill you continuously, spend the majority of the money they're able to raise from whatever conduit that's coming from to facilitate the killing of you, how do you make peace with someone who says, my religion says, I must kill you because you are a non-believer. You're either Christian or Druze or Jewish. And we will kill you. I'm, I'm looking at a quote here from um, Yahya Sinwar, the, the leader of Hamas that the IDF has been looking for quite aggressively, as everyone knows. And he says repeatedly from various hideouts, that October 7th was, quote, just a rehearsal for future strikes on Israel, and we will continue until all the Jews are dead. Is that the guy you want over your fence? It, on the exactly. other side of a line in the ground where he says, I'm going to, to have peace because right now I'm out of money, I'm out of ammo, I'm out of people, but I'm coming back. And when I come back, 
October 7th is going to be nothing compared to what we're going to do next time. Indeed. Someone like that. I, I, I totally accept what you're saying. And I, I just wanted to circle back to another major historical event, and that's the events that led up to the Six-Day War in 1967, because that was yet one of those attempts using forms of propaganda, is my understanding, to explain that there was a takeover where they were going to push the Jews into the sea. That was some of the language that was used in that particular occasion. And it's when the world learned that the Israeli army was well prepared, because this event took place on the on, on my understanding the Jewish holiday when it was an unexpected attack and of course it didn't go that way and to solve a war to end a war in six days historically is 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 unheard of well the 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 war that took place on the holiday there's actually been two the 1973 war took place on the holiest day of the year the day of Yom Kippur the day of atonement where you fast and repent your sins and ask God for forgiveness the vast majority of Israel was in synagogue praying to God when, when the attack started. And Israel was nearly, very closely, uh, came that close to annihilation. The 67 war was different. There wasn't a holiday. But the, the war that's going on right now started on a holiday, the celebration of the, of the Torah. And in Israeli history, um, I, I, I don't think there'll be any problem about this in the future. Israel will have people posted in the army positions, no matter what the day of the year is from now on. Each war, as you called it, the, we're going to push the Jews into the sea. That was Anwar Sadat's um, call to annihilate the Jews. And that's what the plan was. And before him was Nasser. They were all talking about that. They were going to kill all the Jews take over all the land because their holy book says that's what they're supposed to do. Find the Jew and kill him. Find the Christian and kill him. Find the non-believer and kill him or convert them. So it's but you're converted by the sword or by the book. In other words, here's the book, the Quran. You say yes, we take you in. All you have to do is accept Muhammad, you're a Muslim. On the other hand, if you say no, you get the sword cut on the neck, just as you saw the horrible, horrible, horrible videos a couple of years ago where ISIS had all those prisoners, largely Americans and Brits, in the orange jumpsuits, and then they sawed their heads off on live TV. That's what their holy book says to do. Those people that do those crimes are not crazy. They're not radical. They're religious. They follow the book. They follow the commands of their religion. And anyone that doesn't believe me, in fact, here's a challenge to your audience, and I know you've got a big one. Don't believe what Barry's saying. Go on Amazon and buy a Quran in English and read it. It'll stun you out of your shoes what the commandments are of what you're supposed to do. You can marry someone at six years of age and have sex with her. Why? Because Muhammad did that. You can take slaves. You can sell them. You can rape them. You can have many wives. You can kill almost anybody you want with certain justifications. It's a horrific, violent culture. And people need to know that. I know in Australia, there's a a huge Muslim movement that seems to be growing and growing and they're demonstrating and 
profoundly supporting what Hamas did on October 7th, those people aren't crazy. They're just religious. They're following their religion. I, I beg your people that are following your show right now, Jason, buy the book, read the book. Then we'll talk. It's a, it certainly is a, a worthwhile project for anyone who wants to check themselves regardless. And there's no different to picking up a, an English language Bible and reading the Old Testament, New Testament, just the same to, to, to be informed at the pinnacle of, of information available. Um, Back just briefly to the 1967 war, and the reason I bring that up again is that I want to get to the the capital or the now capital, Jerusalem, if it's recognised at least by Donald Trump. But Jerusalem is a city that's been taken many times in its history. And in 1967, Israel took Jerusalem back. And the reason I bring that up, of course, is that in the old city, um, you, 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 the holiest place in the, in, in the Jewish world is the Wailing Wall, or the Western Wall of the, of the Temple. And it sits on the outer edge, obviously, of what is now considered the uh, the um, Dome of the Rock, the Al-Asqa Mosque, um, is, is what sits now on the other side. And the reason I bring all of that up is that uh, part of, um, of Jewish understanding is that uh, peace on earth will reign with the arrival of the Jewish Messiah, who in turn builds the Third Temple. Now, I find that absolutely fascinating, whichever way you stand on the subject, but the very fact that this can be something that is considered biblical prophecy and that one day may or may not play out, but in understanding what's going on there, there have been actual real moves by members of the Israeli government. And even in the era of Trump, it's my understanding that Sheldon Adelson, who was a, a, a fund or donor to the Trump campaign, had actually um, ponied up the money to purchase and may have even purchased materials ready for this third temple. So this is not nothing. This is a very, very big thing that's on the table right now. Can you fill us in on some of the details surrounding your understanding of what approaches or plans there are to perhaps force prophecy or just go down this pathway and build what uh, Jewish people believe is rightfully their uh, th their futures? Well, you mentioned Sheldon Adelson. Um He's now passed. He was a wonderful, generous man, um, and he was a friend of mine. I spent a, a fair amount of time with him. I, I Ironically, I, I didn't know what you just told me, which was uh, he had actually funded it. I know he spoke about it. Um, the Western Wall is the outermost wall that holds up the outside structure of the, um, the flat area on top where the holy temple in the Bible stood. That's King Solomon's temple. That's where Jesus was, where he upended the tables of the money changers. In the Bible, it is said that when the third temple is rebuilt, the Messiah will be on earth. Now, there is debate among biblical scholars. Does the Messiah come first and then the temple gets built? Or does the temple get rebuilt and then the Messiah comes? Uh, I spoke today to a pastor friend of mine um, who runs the Hawaiian-Israel Alliance, and she was talking about, well, first will come the Antichrist uh, mentioned in the New Testament, and then the countries of the world will unite against Jerusalem, then will be the final battle at Armageddon, which you can go visit in Israel. It's it's in uh, an area called Megiddo, and you can go there exactly where the Bible was written about. The fact of the matter is, the holiest place on earth 
is the Temple Mount, because that was considered to be the center of the earth. Most people don't realize why there's a mosque there. So let me educate your audience. In the Muslim religion, when they conquer an area, what they do is they put mosques where there were famous churches and temples. And the reason they do that is to claim ownership of the site. There is no writing in the Quran about Jerusalem. It's not even mentioned at all. It has nothing to do with the religion. That was part of what they conquered thousand years ago. The Crusaders then came to the Holy Land. They took it back. And then there were the Ottoman Turks and there were the various um, conquering armies uh, up till the present day where the Brits and then the Israelis uh, after the mandate ended in 1948 had the country. The fact of the matter is I have been on the Temple Mount. I have been in Al-Aqsa, um, and I've been in the Dome of the Rock. Um, they're lovely structures, but in the religion, they really have no historical reference like it is for Christians and Jews. Every Christian knows what Jesus did in the Temple. Every Jew knows what went on in the Temple. In all of the Jewish liturgy, that where Jews pray, they pray constantly for the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And Christians who hearken for the Messiah to return do the same thing. And when the Messiah comes, we can argue Jew and Christian, well, is it the first visit or the second visit? It doesn't really matter if the Messiah is here, we're all on board, right? And that mm -hmm. temple is part of the prophecy. Um, I, I spoke today to a, a pastor, as I told you, that said to me, there are already priests being trained, biblically trained Levites, to run the temple. They've already built the furniture for the temple. They already have the designs that they've interpreted from the Bible to build the temple. Here's my concern. If that rebuilding occurs, it in my opinion, will be a rallying cry for the Muslim world to unite against Israel. It will give them a religious reason to do it, even though Al-Aqsa and the Dome of the Rock are not historically important sites in their religion, not like Mecca, not like Medina, not like Saudi Arabia, and so on. It's, it is the most riveting of subjects, and it's quite incredible, isn't it? Because I think it was Einstein said, you can simplify anything, but you cannot oversimplify. I feel like in in, in understanding uh, biblical scholarship, like you suggested to go and purchase an English language Quran and perhaps an English language uh, or Old Testament, et cetera, the same thing. You just need to know the detail. And it's an incredibly difficult amount of work to be able to digest it. I know I struggle um, reading biblical uh, works. I just struggle with the language of it and have to approach it from many different ways to try and understand it. But the only way that you do it is to approach them. But to be proud at the same point that we are trying our absolute hardest to fully understand what's going on. Now, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, there's a couple of things that I want to get into, but I, I just want to ask, and I'll, I'll just plant the seed now, how it is the land would be prepared, would it be conquered, or would there be some other arrangement for that land to be prepared for the Third Temple? On that note, planting the seed, we'll take a break. You're watching and listening to Weekends with Jason Olborn here on TNT Radio. 
I didn't ask to be thrown in the streets with nowhere to go, but I did ask for help and Covenant House was there for me. One in 10 young adults will experience a form of homelessness this year. For these kids who didn't ask to be put in this unthinkable situation, Covenant House is there, providing hot meals, a safe place to sleep, medical care, and love. They just really genuinely just wanted to help me succeed, and I'm succeeding. To learn more, go to safeplacetosleep.org today. <laughs> My baby's back from the West Coast. <laughs> Hear those pictures that you asked for for your school project? First day of school, cute as a button. <laughs> so long ago. Oh, here's Grandma Florence after that flood wiped out the whole neighborhood. Sometimes I just cannot believe all the storms we've gone through here. I can only hope that we'll be able to leave this house to you one day, baby. You're our legacy. Planning for these disasters will make sure we're safe. And it's the best way to protect that legacy. <sighs> Those bees smell heavenly. Mm -hmm. Give mom a little credit. You know what? We should make an emergency communication plan. That way we're ready this year. Oh, great idea. At my dorm, we have emergency kits for earthquakes and wildfires, but I'm sure there's something more local I can send you with the link. Okay. Smart. I'm coming to share with you guys. Protect your legacy. Plan for natural disasters today. Visit ready.gov forward slash plan. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back to Weekends, and I'm here with Barry Nussbaum in our third hour of today's show. Before the break, I asked Barry, planting the seed of the next question that I would ask, and that is how it is that Israel might be able to get hold officially of the land to be able to build a third temple. How would that go about? Well, there, first a little history lesson. In 1967, when the paratrooper brigade broke through into the old city, um, it had been conquered by Jordan in 1948, and all the Jews were expelled, and all the temples were destroyed. Uh, and what the Jordanians did was they desecrated every Jewish site in the old city. They dumped garbage. Uh, they put in animals, and so the excrement from the animals defiled the ground. There was a tremendous amount of cleanup necessary in order to purify or sanctify the ground again. Um, when the paratroopers liberated Jerusalem, uh, the old city of Jerusalem, and allowed Jews to finally come back and pray at the holiest place in the world, there's an interesting story. And to this day, I think the story is true, but I'm not positive about it. Uh, the defense minister was a man named Moshe Dayan. And when they went up onto the Temple Mount, uh, certain commanders in the Israeli army were bringing up the sappers, the demolition experts, and they were going to blow up the Muslim shrines that had been built over the ruins of the temple. Uh, the reason they were going to do that is to then clear the ground and make it able to be rebuilt as the temple, which would be the third temple in biblical history. The story goes, I'm not sure about this, but it's been told a lot. Moshe Dayan, as a um, proponent of biblical history and an, an amateur archaeologist and a historian, said, no, 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 we can't do that. Let's leave the Muslim shrines here. And he stopped the demolition. Had it been done and had 
Israel cleared it at that time when they were very popular as the underdog, you might see a temple there already built. He stopped it, according to the folklore, and the Muslim shrines still sit there. The part that's really weird, which I've never understood, and this makes no sense to me, Israel turned over the management of the Temple Mount to the Jordanian authorities. And even to this day, ever since 1967, the Temple Mount is administered by the Jordanian Waqf. And it is a Muslim organization um, that, by the way, hates Israel, hates Jews, hates Christians, and does everything they can to prohibit or inhibit Jewish and Christian prayer on the Temple Mount. When I was there and I was allowed in with special passes, it was many years ago, probably 30 years ago. And I went in with the founder of the Israeli Air Force and he got us in. Uh, I don't even think it's possible for a non-Muslim to go into those shrines today. Having said that, if those shrines had been blown up like the plan was in 67, yeah, the world might be significantly different. If they did it today, I think it would start a world war. Yeah, it's just incredible, isn't it? It's um, so much tension, so much conflict, so much misunderstanding, um, e even just a, a lack of even knowing how this process can even play out. There's just so much coming. And and like you said, part of it, of the experience is to go there and, and and walk on the ground and touch and knock and smell and, and all of the above. I remember taking a trip uh, as a 25-year-old, um, gosh, half my life ago now, and, uh, and being over there with one of my school friends who'd move over to Jerusalem and walking down the streets and he would point out something. He, he made two points. He said, have you noticed something different today than you did yesterday when you were walking on your own? And I said, I, I actually do. And he says, yeah, now because you're walking with a, with a local, people are looking at you more differently, aren't they? And I said, yes, I've noticed a lot more eyes on me today than yesterday. He says, that's because yesterday you were a tourist, now you're a local. That that blew my mind. Then he pointed to, um, to a wall and he said, see those bullet holes in the wall over there? I said, yep. He said, that was 1967. And we walked a little bit further and he said, see those ones over there? He said, that was 1973. And we walked a little bit further and he said, see those ones up there over there? I said, what are they? And he says, last Thursday. And again, it was another one of those moments that, uh, again, I, I couldn't uh, comprehend. When I arrived at the airport, this is 1997, I noticed that everyone was walking around with not one but two mobile phones strapped to their belts. I didn't know why people walked around with two. A lot of people walked around with um, open carry um, um, guns, and I asked my friend about that, and he said, what are you worried about? Everyone in Israel goes through two years of uh, military training. Who better to carry a gun? And that took away my anxiety in that situation, uh, and, I, and that was profound. Uh, but it's this same process of, of being out there. Obviously, Barry, you've been uh, many times to Israel. Have you also been to Gaza? And what did you notice if you did? Uh, I was on my last trip there. Um, I filmed, geez, maybe 30 different segments for broadcast. Um, I also appeared on Israeli television, interviewed by them as an American. Um, when I was at Gaza, uh, I was accompanied by a colonel and general in the Israeli Defense Forces, the Army, and they took me to the area where, ironically, the massacre took place years later, the massacre of October 7th. I was taken to where those tunnels were. 
I was taken to the fence and I saw it. And the general said something very interesting to me. He was the commander at the time, he's since retired, of Southern Israel, of the entire country. And he said to me, you see all these buildings, all these apartment blocks, all these shopping centers? Do you know who built all of this? And I said, I don't know. Tell me. And he said, Goslam, I'm sorry, Gazan Muslim Arabs. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, in the old days, the border was open. They would come every day to work. They would make more in a week than they would make in six months in Gaza. They would take all the money back. They lived great lives. We had many, many Arab friends that lived in Gaza, and everything was great. Here's what changed horribly. In 2005, the prime minister, uh, Arik Sharon, Ariel Sharon, made a decision that I think historically has turned out to be tragic. He decided that Israel should not occupy and rule Gaza anymore. We, the Israelis, need to leave. And if we, the Israelis, leave, there will be long-term peace. And Gaza will have an, an economy like Singapore or Qatar or the UAE. Terrible mistake he mm. made. There were no rockets going over the border. There were no infiltrations. There was no fighting, nothing. It was total peace because the IDF was in Gaza. Gaza was prosperous. Gaza had trade with the rest of the world. Gaza almost had a completely open border. And many, many, many Gazans worked in southern Israel. A year after Israel pulled out, by the way, they dug up all the cemeteries. They demolished the synagogues. They evacuated by force every Jew who they said could live there forever. And it became, as they say in German, Juden free, free of all Jews. By the following year, Hamas took over and their motto that they wear on their foreheads on those green scarves is to the death. And it's mm -hmm. written in Arabic and it means we will fight until we are dead or all the Jews are dead. And that's their charter. And in 2006, when they took over, they did three things. Number one, they canceled all elections. There have never been elections since. That's right. Number two, they killed all the opposition Palestinians. And number three, they declared a permanent war on the Jews, and it has never stopped. Yes. It has never, ever stopped. And they have said, we will fight until the last fighter is dead or we have killed all the Jews. So I find it silly when highly intelligent people, let's say in the American political system at the very top in Washington say, oh, there has to be a two straight solution and Hamas has to stay in control. Hamas is a terror organization bent on annihilating everybody that lives in the country of Israel that's non-Muslim. I'm not making this up. It's in their charter. Go on Google and Google the following, Charter of Hamas. And when you read it, you would think it was written by Adolf Hitler. You have never read anything more ferocious, more vicious, and more bent on death. You can't have a two-state solution for somebody that says, okay, you stop fighting and I'm going to kill you. As Golda Meir said, if the Jews 
laid down their weapons tomorrow, there would be no Israel. Mm. If the Arabs laid down their weapons tomorrow, there would be peace. And that's the difference. It's a very, very profound statement from the former Prime Minister of, of Israel. Um, if Hamas was to stand over the Palestinian people, and that means no elections in 18 years, uh, perhaps because the argument is that um, we don't need to have elections because they're just going to people are just going to vote for Hamas anyway, is 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 a nonsense argument that would is anti-democratic despite its nature, which is ironic because Klaus Schwab is now talking about no more elections in a in a, in a global world. We don't need them. We can use uh, other forms of um, computer projection to determine the outcome. The world is being stood over at the moment by unelected globalists who are manipulating and infiltrating world governments. Uh, in particular, we're seeing it in the United States, Joe Biden uh, doesn't even seem competent to be even holding the office, let alone anything to represent freedom-loving America. Who would have thought that the land of the free and the home of the brave is represented by Biden? It just seems illogical. In the remaining, just I think we've only got about two and a half minutes left, but um, what do you see as the outcome uh, after 12 months at the election, will there be a US election in November of 2024? And what do you think the outcome uh, can or will be? If there's no election, there's no America. Let me put it that way. Mm. Therefore, there must be an election. Yeah. Um, if I was a political pundit, oh, I am. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Donald Trump is up ridiculously among Republican voters. He will be the nominee. Uh, number one. Number two, uh, Joe Biden has broken every single record in American history since polling started in the 1930s, 90 years ago, as the most unpopular sitting president in American history in the last 90 years. There's not a chance in a free and fair election Biden is reelected. You can take that to the bank. He's the most unpopular president in American history, and he has the most unpopular vice president in American history, there's not a chance he could be reelected if an election is fair and free. I predict if absent some sort of black swan weird event, Donald Trump will be the next president of the United States. And if he's back, and if he's back, you'll see the borders close. You'll see the war in Ukraine and Russia stop. You'll see terrorism by the Houthi rebels who are shooting at ships every single day, that'll stop. You'll see Iran's proxies that are firing at American troops all over the Middle East and Iraq and in Syria, uh, wherever the American troops are, that will stop. We'll go back to peace because Donald Trump does something that Biden doesn't, and that is peace through strength. The Reagan doctrine will come back in the form of Donald Trump. That's my prediction. It's quite incredible that disruptors have made such a profound effect across the planet in business and in all sorts of forms. But whoever would have thought that you would have a political disruptor to let peace break out on Earth? It's an extraordinary situation. We saw it between 2017 and 2021. And we do hope to see it in 2025 and beyond. It's just a remarkable situation. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, Barry, and I wanted to ask you a little bit more about US politics, but perhaps we can do that on a later date. I just want to wish you um, a, a merry 
Christmas and a happy Hanukkah, uh, a happy new year, and all the best for the rebuilding of life in Maui, where the people deserve to be treated like all other people. And of course, the same in the Middle East, that we hope that this is somehow peacefully resolved, whichever way that goes about, and that people can get on with living out the rest of their lives, not the way that it, we've seen it, certainly not in the last three years, and of course, throughout the rest of history. I'll say goodbye to you now, Barry, and uh, we will be back after the break with more here on Weekends with Jason Olborn on TNT Radio.